Beloved, if you are new to Trinity in the last seven weeks, you may not know me. I am your interim pastor, Mike Sherritt. You've been blessed for the last seven weeks of Lent through the preaching of the Lord's servant, Jesse Robinson. I'm going to take the next eight weeks and finish the book of First Thessalonians that we began some time ago. So we are jumping right into the middle. Our text is 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Paul writes, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this, For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly, and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. This is the word of the Lord. Imagine you pop into a coffee shop in Athens, Greece, 2,000 years ago. And you see Paul and Silas and Timothy sitting at a table over here. You walk over, and you say, Paul, you look tired and very concerned. I am. Why? I have profound distress in my soul about my friends in Thessalonica. I don't know how they're doing, and they're suffering severe persecution. Fast forward a month or so later, you're in Corinth, you pop into a coffee shop, there's Paul. You walk over and you notice, Paul, you look elated. What happened? I'm sleeping again. I received news about my friends in Thessalonica. They're doing well despite persecution. Oh. My soul is at rest. In fact, Paul says essentially verse 8 in your text. Look at verse 8. He says to you, for now we live. If the Thessalonians are standing fast in the Lord for what thanksgiving can we give to God for them for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God. Do you see the transformation from angst 
to relief, from burden to joy. What was Paul's main concern regarding the welfare of the Thessalonians? Did you see it? Five times in the text I read. Five times he refers to their faith. Why? Because their faith, just as much as your faith, is your most precious possession. I know you have a lot of precious possessions. Your freedom, your opportunities, your health, your wealth, your relationships. Beloved, you have no more precious possession in all the universe than your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So because it's listed five times in this text, I just want to tease out five aspects of faith so that you cherish it more and more as your most precious possession, faith in Jesus Christ. Number one, you can see from the outline in the bulletin, faith lays hold of Christ. How do we know that? Our first sermon in this series, we looked at Acts 17, which tells us Paul came to Thessalonica, as he did in all the cities where he evangelized, preaching a message. He was announcing good news. In the ancient world, that had the connotation of victory. And Paul preached to them the Lord Jesus Christ. And he appealed to people who wanted to be right with God, weren't sure that they could be, who wanted to live in God's paradise forever, weren't exactly certain if they were qualified, and he proclaimed the victory of Jesus Christ for helpless sinners, that in Jesus we have all things necessary to make a claim on the presence of God forever. We have cleansing of our sin through his cross. We have the assurance of final resurrection through his victory. We have the declaration of perfect righteousness through the work of Jesus Christ. And that is especially good news to the extent you feel the weight of your inability to give God the righteousness he deserves. So do you see the first principle? Those who have most offended God most relish Jesus' offer of forgiveness. Or to put it more pithy, according to your outline, see the principle, those least deserving are most desiring. Now you may be thinking this, Mike, what Jesus did objectively and in history happened outside of me. How do I get a connection to? How do I benefit from? How do I partake of? How do I become one with Christ's victory over sin on the cross and Christ's victory over death in his glorious resurrection? How do you become one with that? How do the spoils of Christ's work actually become yours? Great question. I'm glad you asked it. The answer Faith. Faith unites you to the work of Christ. Faith is trust. It's acceptance. It's leaning upon. It is nothing less than a Holy Spirit worked ability 
in our hearts an assurance and a conviction, supernatural, the Holy Spirit giving anyone who desires it the ability to believe that because Jesus loves you, he died for your sins. Faith. Let me illustrate it. You're out in the ocean. It's very rough. You're not a swimmer. You're on a fishing boat. You fall overboard. You're desperate. You can't save yourself. You are going to drown. Somebody on the boat throws you a life preserver. It lands right in front of you. You see it. You know that life preserver exists. Has it done you any good yet? No. You're looking at it. When does the life preserver save you? When you grab it, when you rest the weight of your life upon it, when you become one with this flotation device, that's faith. It seizes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Not merely knowing Jesus exists, but taking him, grabbing him as your life preserver because you know you can't save yourself. So you see the principle. Faith always has an object. You trust in something. You rest upon something. You grab something. And so your faith is only as good as the object is strong to deliver you. Let me illustrate that with the same scenario. You're out in the ocean. It's very rough. It's a fishing boat. You're not a swimmer, you fall in. Somebody throws you a life preserver that's actually made out of paper. Lands right in front of you. It looks strong. Man, it looks really sturdy. You believe with all your heart that that life preserver could save you. And when you grab it, it turns to mush. And you die. Because that life preserver is incapable of saving you. So thinking that that thing can deliver you from drowning means actually nothing. What matters is the power, the ability, the strength of that life preserver to save you. So the question is, who in earth's history ever promised helpless sinners to be delivered from condemnation and death. Jesus Christ. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. He who believes in me has eternal life. Jesus bids every one of us and everyone you know, take me, I will save you. Isn't that comforting, beloved? It's not the strength of your faith that counts. It's Jesus' strength to save. He's a mighty Savior. First point, it's the longest one of my five. Number two. Faith will be assaulted. Verse two. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and to exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we're destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, 
I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So here's one of the great ironies in human history. Those who are most a blessing to their communities, followers of Jesus, who love their neighbor unconditionally, who forgive their enemies, who love their enemies, who seek by God's grace to be the very best citizens, those tend to be treated the worst. It was certainly true in the ancient world as the gospel was spread. And so you see the point. Paul's concern that these afflictions, he told them what was going to happen when he shared the gospel with them. He was concerned these afflictions would erode their faith. The fact is, in God's economy, faith not only prepares you for affliction, but it can enable you to endure. It is refined through affliction. Now, we could say more about persecution. I do want to draw your attention, though, to verse 5, because Paul annexes a second source of temptation for the eroding of their faith. What is it? It's Satan. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So he's concerned that the seed of the word is being snatched up off the path of their hearts. It raises what question? In what way does Satan seek to destroy your faith? How would he seek to minimize this ability, this supernatural ability, this, this, this grace to rest in Christ? Among many things, he would seek to keep from your sight that which creates faith. So Paul tells us in Romans 10, faith comes through hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. God has ordained that the principal way the Spirit creates faith in a heart that would never otherwise have it is that you hear about Jesus Christ. You hear the message preached. Jesus is set before you. And in God's economy, there's a seeing Christ, an understanding created by the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit births faith in us. Satan would seek to eclipse that from your sight. In fact, Paul's so vivid about this, he writes in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. It's the saddest thing that could be said about anything ever. Unbelievers are blinded by Satan from seeing Christ. That's ultimately why in your many efforts to share Jesus with people, say, why aren't they believing? Why aren't they believing? Why aren't they believing? Well, there's this complete inability within them to do it, and Satan's blinded them. If you have faith in Jesus, glory to God. Because the Holy Spirit has come, ripped off the blinders, opened your eyes to see who Jesus is and given you the ability to believe that who he is is all for you. Stunning and amazing. We could say more about that in another setting. Number three. Five times Paul references the faith of the Thessalonians. 
That is because it is their most precious possession and your most precious possession. So we're seeking to understand faith according to this text. Number three, faith produces love. I'm looking at verse six. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Why does Paul have angst? Not just for their welfare, persecution in the face of their faith. He has angst because there are two facts that have not yet been joined together. First fact, the Thessalonians loved Paul. Second fact, Paul loved the Thessalonians. But there's some element of doubt about these things until Paul sends Timothy, comes back to report to Paul, and those two facts are joined. Paul, they love you, and I've assured them that you love them. What does that tell you about love? It tells you that one of the key elements of love is my welfare is bound up in your welfare. John, if you're not doing well, you're my brother, I can't be doing well. Walter, if you're rejoicing, I'm rejoicing. Your welfare is Parents understand this, right? You're only doing as well as your kid that's doing the worst is doing, right? We get this. And that's what Paul is saying here. I can't be doing well till I know you're doing well. Think how different that is than the way the world does love. Typically, the world does, does love like this. And I know it because I've done this and experienced it myself. I'll stay in this relationship as long as I'm getting what I want. But as soon as you stop meeting my needs... As soon as your sin and your idiosyncrasies and the things that annoy me come to a tipping point, I'm out. It's very conditional. Love is conditioned on, right? It's the calcils, the, the rain, the park, and other things. I knew, I knew, I knew she could make you happy, happy, happy. How many people know the song? Remember that one? I knew, I knew, I knew she could make me happy, happy, happy. What a profoundly self-serving view of love that is. We're not in relationships to, for the other person to make us happy. We're in relationships to serve them for their welfare, for their good. And this is what Christian love does. It experiences the love of Jesus for us when we were giving him our worst on the cross, mocking, spitting, torturing, crucifying him. He is saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That bursts a love in Christians that bears frailty, weakness, and a whole lot of sin. It's called gospel love. It's beautiful. It's enduring. It overlooks faults. Drench your heart in the love of Jesus for you. Your welfare will be bound up in the welfare of another. Number four, faith risks sacrificially. I'm looking at verses 1 and 2. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and to exhort you in your faith. 
So just before you enter this coffee shop in Athens, imagine Paul and Timothy sitting at a table, and they're discussing the welfare of the Thessalonians, and they're just come to a tipping point. Paul says, well, we could bear it no longer. Now, what do Christians do when they are at the end of the rope? (laughs) They pray. (laughs) They also pray before they get to the end of the rope. (laughs) But you can imagine the discussion. How are we going to get word to the Thessalonians? How do we see that they're standing firm in the faith? So so Paul, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they bow their heads and they pray. Lord, we're so concerned for these beloved believers. We want to get word to them. We want to encourage them. We want their face to be straightened. Is the Satan tempting them? Paul says, amen. He looks up at his young protege, Timothy, and he says, Timothy, the, it dawned on me in our prayer. You need to go to Thessalonica. Paul, I can't do that. I can't leave you here alone. I know how important our fellowship is to your ministry. I know that this is a collaborative effort. We need each other. We, we're bounded together in the power of the Holy Spirit. No, no. Sending you to Thessalonica is more important than my needs being met. See the principle? Faith frees you to part with good things for the sake of others. Paul was parting with a good thing, his fellowship with Timothy, for the sake of the the Thessalonians. You know this from your experience. Many of you have parted for Jesus' sake with your reputation in some settings. You've parted with a promotion. You've parted with people looking at you as being respectable. You've had to part with relationships. Some of you came to university You found Christ. You could no longer be in certain relationships. Some of you found Christ University, and mom and dad said, we're not interested in that. You're on your own. You parted with something very good for the sake of following Jesus Christ. Christians motivated by trust in Jesus part with their time, their convenience. They part with their money, They part with support. They part with friendships, even for the sake of, even part with their lives for the sake of others. You may know that British missionaries sent out in the 18th and 19th centuries, when they went to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, they packed all their possessions in their own coffins. The only thing coming back from a distant land where they went to share Jesus was their deceased body. They knew they were parting with their very lives for the sake of the gospel. And it bears asking what sort of truth fosters that quality of sacrifice. It's Jesus' promise and devotion I'm thinking where he says in John, no greater love has anyone this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You know yourself to be Jesus' precious possession. You know that he gave up everything to make you his friend. You know that Jesus Christ is utterly committed to your welfare. He never stops thinking about you. He never stops praying for you. He never disavows himself of his intense interest in your welfare. Boy, that's love. 
and you know that love in your heart, and it leads you to ask what question? Is God asking me to part with something good in order to serve him in a new way? Trinity has sent hundreds of people from its midst over the last 40-some years because they were willing to entertain seriously that question. Is God calling you to part with something good, convenience, safety, income, friendships, a lovely home in Albemarle County? Is God calling you to part with something good for the sake of others? you got to think about that. Got to pray about that. Number five, faith must be supplemented. Let's suppose you come into that coffee shop, you sit down next to a table, and you actually hear Paul, Silas, and Timothy praying. And you hear essentially verse 10 in this prayer. They're pleading, Lord, we're praying earnestly day and night to see the Thessalonians face to face and supply what is lacking in their faith. The prayer ends, you get your order up at the cashier, you come back and you say, Paul, excuse me, just one second, I apologize, I couldn't help but overhear you praying, and you said something very curious to me, may I ask you about that? Of course. What did you mean by the phrase, supply what is lacking in their faith? I'd like to know more about that. And Paul would explain to you that the Thessalonians and every follower of Jesus, in some way, will see their faith threatened by, verse 7, distress, affliction, and temptation. And it's in the face of that that Paul desires that they are, according to verse 8, standing firm in the Lord. Standing firm in the Lord. Remember, when he hears that they are standing firm in the Lord, he goes, I can live. Finally, what is essential to standing firm in the Lord? Robust faith. They're almost synonyms, aren't they? Strong faith, standing firm in the Lord. You and I have no greater need when we leave this building today, no greater need than standing firm in the faith. So let me just tease out a couple aspects of that and we'll be finished. Faith, like a plant, needs roots. Faith flourishes in good soil, teaching, light, protection, watering, weeding, pruning. I'm thinking of Colossians 2, 6, and 7. Paul writes, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, hey, how did you receive Christ? By faith. You seized him. You rested upon him. You took him. You believed in him. You accepted him. He says, so walk in him. Walk in faith. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Boy, there's a sermon in itself right there, isn't it? How thanksgiving functions to protect and foster faith. Think about that today. How does abounding in thanksgiving help your faith? Next point, faith like a plant will be assaulted. And here I'm thinking of the, the parable of the sower, where the sower goes out, a parable Jesus taught in Mark 4, and the, 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 uh, the seeds fall on different places. And the seed that falls among the thorns sprouts up 
And what happens? According to Mark 4, verse 18, these are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and desires for other things enter in and choke the word. Do you have cares about the world? Yeah. Has God entrusted to you a certain modicum of wealth? Yeah. Are there desires for other things in your heart? Yes. These are all precarious. Because if given life, they have the ability to come up and choke out faith, your most precious possession. This should scare you. (laughs) It really should. I've been given wealth. There are lots of cares of this world. There are desires for other things. How you negotiate and manage those, beloved, while standing firm in the Lord is a really, really important thing. We could say a whole lot more about that. Finally, faith needs supply. So Paul uses this phrase, supply, what is lacking in your faith. It's interesting that in the ancient world, this word supply referred to the mending of nets. Mending of nets. I think Paul is saying, okay, picture it. My faith is like a net. And Paul's there to say, if there's a breach in the net, you're not gonna, your faith isn't going to catch everything it needs to catch. What does your faith need to catch? Why do there, the, the hearts need to be whole like a net? What does it need to catch? It needs to catch truth, biblical instruction, doctrine, spiritual wisdom, the knowledge of Christ. What's the principle? Weak doctrines are no match for strong temptations. They're being tempted, assaulted, persecuted. Weak doctrines are no match for strong temptations. That's why you see on the pages of the New Testament a heavy emphasis on right instruction, biblical teaching. So the point is, beloved, our faith in Jesus who is very, very strong and not weak, is one thing. Our grasp on him can become weak. And the point is, the more you know him, the more sure you will be of his love in the face of temptation and affliction. So, if your Jesus is fuzzy, what should you do? Never assume it's that he doesn't love you. Never assume that. What you should do is get with people who are seeing Jesus, who are striving to know Jesus, who take Jesus seriously. Get with them. Faith is a community activity. It is not to be done alone. So the moment you think, I just want to go off and live in the mountains in a cabin and have nothing to do with anybody, you're putting yourself in a precarious position vis-a-vis the welfare of your faith. We do faith together as a people. Never assume it's because he doesn't love you. Get with people who see him. And remember, you become what you look at. Set your eyes on Jesus. Open his word. 
open it frequently, open it daily, open it with quietness and free from distraction, and ask the Spirit of Jesus to show you Jesus. Clearer sight of Jesus builds strong faith. You become what you look at. So, beloved, diagnose the source of your blindness. What are you putting your eyes on that's keeping you from seeing Jesus? And let's get Jesus in front of our eyes every day together. And may he explode our faith in him. Let's pray. What an amazing thing that you give the blind eyes. You give the dead life. You give those in darkness to come into the light. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for the gift of faith. So, Jesus, show yourself more and more clearly to us that we may behold you and trust you and love and serve and glorify you in your name. Amen.